Welcome to this bonus episode of Rain On Me, a podcast about European royal houses. I'm your host, Jennifer Goldbranson, and I'm giving you a content warning that this bonus episode will be discussing at great length abortion, women's rights, and the decision reversal of Roe v. Wade by the United States Supreme Court. I will also be going over the history of abortion in politics and society from both European points of view and American points of view. I am a proud democratic socialist, and if your views are different than mine and you do not want to consume this content, I respect that. However, I will continue to be talking about it. As always, dialogue is important, and I have a platform, and this is what I choose to use my platform for. So join me for this discussion on the reversal of Rose versus Wade and the history of abortion and women's rights in society. So, my fellow Americans, we found out today that Rock Bottom has a basement. And I wasn't going to do a podcast about Roe versus Wade being overturned because I didn't see how it fit in to European royal houses, but it does. Um, and it's because I have been consuming a lot of content in the last 48 hours and a lot of historians have been weighing in and I'm an amateur historian, so it it does track. And I think that this is a great platform to kind of give a roadmap of what's actually happening here because history always repeats itself. And we are going down a dangerous path with a minority ruling class. Now, one of the biggest myths out there is that the voice of the people can always drown out the voice of the ruling class. And we are seeing that that is not the case. So let's go backwards in time. And since we're talking about the first empire of France, we're going to start there because I want to talk about how not only abortion itself evolved politically over the last 250 years, I want to talk about women's rights and how men interjecting themselves into women's rights and the rights of the minority classes through religion kind of sets the stage for where we are today. So let's get started. Now, purely historically speaking, abortion didn't even become something criminal or talked about or looked down upon until Thomas Jefferson became president. And we've talked about the uh, the landscape of America that shifted when Thomas Jefferson became president and how we kind of got the birth of the evangelical Christian and this whole uh, societal change. That dovetailed nicely into the Victorian era, which is kind of where we are right now. Um, Let's get started with the start of the French Revolution, because that's where we started this podcast in the first place. So in 1791, the new law book, so to speak, was written and passed in the French Assembly. It was called the Code Penal, uh, the Penal Code, right? It was the French Penal Code. And it was the first time a lot of things that were considered illegal were now not illegal. Uh, You also have to remember that at this time, most of Europe is Catholic, 
So there is canonical law. I cannot talk today, you guys. (laughs) There's canonical law, and now there is a penal code that goes with uh, the canon. Um, it, It was kind of the first push to separate church and state, because remember, the religion was abolished halfway through the French uh, revolution because religion is meant to oppress. Uh, and that's what we're seeing today, that religion is being used to oppress certain populations. Uh, and it was the first thing that was abolished by the revolutionaries because everything was done to the lower classes in order to enrich the ruling class. And the ruling class was the monarchy and the clergy. Uh, so when the penal code was written, a lot of those canonical laws were overturned, one of those being homosexuality. It had been illegal, but in the new penal code, it was like, it's okay to be gay. <laughs> you can't be openly gay, but you won't be arrested and hanged for it. So this is where we kind of get the start of uh, giving rights to normal human behavior rather than using arbitrary church law to keep the ruling class protected and find a way to instill fear and control into the lower classes and to keep them working hard. That was always the objective of having a ruling class that is of the minority is to have the masses work as hard as they can. Now, we had a similar thing going on here in America that the pandemic uh, really facilitated in people realizing that we are the worker bees for the 1% and that we are exploited and that we are controlled and that our country is slowly turning into totalitarianism, a police state, and it's all based on evangelical Christian law. So we saw church and state get kind of bulldozed by the Supreme Court this week. So the lines are blurring. And again, this was something that we saw happen in 1791 in France. And the the people were like, no, we're not doing this anymore. And so we have the penal code. It's also worth noting that Napoleon adopted much of this penal code into his Napoleonic code when he assumed power. Now, a lot of the things I'm seeing across social media channels are People saying, well, what what would the founding fathers have said? The founding fathers would not have meddled into women's business. That's what abortion was considered 250 years ago, women's business. Um, (laughs) And one of my favorite things to think about when people are like, what, you know, because the current ruling class is really into like analyzing what the founding fathers wrote down over 250 years ago. (laughs) And it's like... They would be, they would flip their wigs if they saw that there were papists on the Supreme Court. <laughs> it, there was nothing worse than having a papist. And like the, all of the memes about there being an Irish Catholic president and how they would literally be apoplectic about it, that's absolutely accurate. It's hard to view what was written down in 1785. And, you know, before and after without viewing it through the lens. I mean, these men had slaves. They were deists and Quakers and Protestant. And the idea of Irish Catholics (laughs) is just, 
they would be apoplectic. I have no doubt. Um, I also saw a meme that they would be more interested in the fact that we went to the moon than <laughs> what's going on here. I think they would be very puzzled, like, why are we meddling into women's business? Now, in the seventeen late 1700s, early 1800s, women's business was conducted by women. Uh, midwives were the ones who tended to women. We didn't really have a lot of male doctors addressing women's health. Uh, so if there was an unwanted pregnancy, there were ways to uh, not, you know, continue that pregnancy. Um, there were tinctures, teas. I'm not going to repeat those because I don't want to um, have anybody feel like they need to resort to these ancient, potentially deadly ways of purging a pregnancy, but it could be done. And it wasn't looked upon like you were sinning. It wasn't looked upon like you were murdering a child. It was just, this is inconvenient. <laughs> or this is, you know, brought on by something unwanted. There wasn't any qualification for terminating a pregnancy. It was, I just don't want to be pregnant. And you went to your midwife or you went to um, whatever woman, you know, they were sometimes called witches because they empowered women and you got your tincture and you had a 50-50 shot of it working. Uh, also remember that childbirth was completely insanely dangerous for women in those days and contributed to the high mortality rate. And that mortality rate actually increased when men physicians started to put their nose in our business. So that is an interesting take there. It wasn't until... Thomas Jefferson became president that we had this surge in uh, evangelical Christian roots, Baptists, etc. These Protestant uh, reactionary views of Christianity that we started to see more women be diagnosed as hysterical and they were sent to asylums and everything was very punitive. Uh, beginning in around 1810. So let's remember that if we're going to, you know, really canonize what the founding fathers thought, they didn't think anything of it. They would be like, why are you talking to me about this? We're also talking about men who enslave their own children. So again, I don't think the sanctity of, quote, pro-life is, <laughs> is up for debate with them. They didn't care. Um, they would also be like, wow, you can have a gun that shoots eight rounds a second? No, that should not be legal. I don't think that is being interpreted the way they think it should be at all. Um, you have to remember that gun manufacturing in the 1700s was incredibly slow and laborious, and they would need the well-regulated militia of the states to bring their own guns and join in the fight because it took so long to produce muskets and pistols. And I have a hard time thinking that Benjamin Franklin would be like, yes, this should be legal. He would be stoked that they had a cure for syphilis. He would he'd be like, what? <laughs> so I really have a problem with the uh, trite arguments that, oh, this is what the founding fathers intended. Well, the founding fathers also intended us to have a revisiting of the Constitution every 19 years. Did that happen? No. Why? Because what's written down right now protects a very small subset of people like it was intended to do. 
Anyway, so let's go back to France. Historically speaking, and we're going to start again here in 1791 France, there's always a push for women's rights, and they get just to the finish line, and then it has to get walked back. Because very... I'm sorry. Somebody just decided to rev their engine in the middle of my podcast. Rude. Anyway. (laughs) In 1791, the women of... Paris mostly, started to protest and fight back for the inequality that was going on and famously stormed Versailles, the fishwife riot, right? So there were a lot of, for lack of a better word, I'm going to use suffragettes and revolutionaries as my terminology here. They were fighting the good fight. They were fighting for the right to women, for women to own property, the right for women to earn a wage. They were doing really well in advancing the cause of women. The revolution, the first revolution in France would not have happened if the women didn't get pissed off. But it was when they got just to the finish line and they're about to write a new constitution that the legislation across all of the houses, the houses of the lords, the gentry, the bourgeoisie, they all went, oh, crap. If we give women power, we're not going to have enough soldiers. So the way governments have been set up traditionally for the last 300 years is that you have to have baby booms in order to protect the ruling class by having cheap labor and a military. That is the only two things they are concerned with. Because you cannot have a militaristic capitalist society without an indentured servitude of some kind. That's why the modern military in America preys upon lower income kids so that they feel like their way out of their situation is by joining the military. And it indoctrinates them while they're in the military. There's a reason why they play Fox News on the bases. Um, So then you have a whole generation of indoctrinated patriots who will have legacies in the military and legacies in their factory jobs. The um, military to manual labor pipeline is very, very well ingrained in Western societies across all cultures. Your soldiers grow up to work in factories. Your soldiers grow up to be laborers. And you cannot have everybody coming from an empowered place to keep that going, which is why everybody should be incredibly alarmed by the line in the Supreme Court's ruling that we need a domestic surplus of babies because they need prisoners and they need soldiers. And that's the other thing that France figured out in the first revolution when they did their new penal code is that the prison to slave labor pipeline was also very, very well ingrained in their society. If you have more laws, you have more laws to break and you have more people to imprison and you have more people to give you imprisoned slave labor. That is a huge part of the prison industrial complex here in America. Now, when Roe v. Wade was put into effect in the mid-70s, a generation later, which would be my generation, 
saw a huge drop in crime in um, the early 90s. And it was attributed to the fact that abortion was safe and accessible. So unwanted children were not born into poverty and enforcing generational trauma and generational poverty. So without that, you know, at-risk population either going into the military or resorting to a life of crime, we saw the prison industrial complex uh, drop off dramatically. Now, it is okay in America in the year of our Lord 2022 to pay a prisoner seven cents an hour to work brutal manual labor eight hours a day. And when you are in prison, you are required to have a job for eight hours a day, unless you have a physical limitation that doesn't allow you to work. And if you do have a physical limitation that doesn't allow you to work, you're put to work somehow, some way. It's slave labor. And that's why, the, and it's put in, out there to be slave labor in order to ensure high recidivism rates. So let's, let's just do a quickie example. Hmm, let's think. I'm doing this on the fly because I, I want you guys to understand that the math maths here. So let's say Jane Doe has a child at the age of 16 that does not, and she doesn't have the uh, resources to care for this child. She is kicked out of her house. She has to be on government assistance, and she is going from one bad situation to another. She cannot afford birth control, much less proper medical care. And in a few years, she ends up with four or five children under the poverty line. Without the resources and the community to raise these children, Jane Doe is working two jobs part-time on the weekends. She's not able to finish her education. And her children, because she has lost her family community, are basically just raising themselves or raising each other in a bad situation. Now, because of this vicious cycle, Jane's son, Trevor, I don't know why Trevor popped in my brain. Uh, Jane's son, Trevor, decides that he's going to get out but he's going to get out by knocking off liquor stores. So he starts earning a living knocking off liquor stores. And one time he gets popped. So he gets popped for armed robbery. He gets the first-time offender special, and he goes back out on the streets. He's now a convicted felon, but he gets probation. And now because he's a convicted felon, he cannot enroll in certain colleges. He cannot pursue certain careers. He cannot get financial aid for school. He cannot work for the transit system. He cannot get basic manual labor work. So he goes back to knocking off liquor stores because it's really the only thing society has allowed him to do. Now we have a recidivism, right? His second offense, he gets a year in prison. During that year in prison, he is taught how to do electrical work. So he spends the one year and one day in prison, because they always give you one year and one day so you can't shave time off your sentence. He does his one year and one day and learns all about doing electrical work. But he can't become an electrician because he's a convicted felon. So he has spent an entire year 
doing high-skilled labor for seven cents an hour, and he leaves prison with $40, a train ticket, and nowhere to go because now he is a twice-convicted felon, and he is unable to get a job anywhere because it's very, very hard unless you are a privileged felon (laughs) to return back into the workforce. He can't even get a job at McDonald's because they don't hire felons. So he attempts, you know, cutting grass and everything, but he's just not able to get back into society because of his past. So he goes back to knocking off liquor stores. By this time, he has fathered two children, and these two children are growing up without their father because he keeps, you know, going back to prison. And thus, the cycle continues. And they need that cycle to continue because of all of the free labor that is coming out of the prison system. When you think about it, uh, the prisoners of our for-profit prisons are producing so many of our products we don't even realize. Let me give you a list of the products prisoners provide us in America. So there's this myth that the prison industrial complex produces things for the state, such as license plates. That's the big joke, right? They're in there stamping out license plates or working on the chain gang for the railroad. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when we don't really learn history the way we're supposed to learn history, because we'll take storylines of folklore and turn them into fact. So in fact, prison complex is producing a lot more than you think. And most of it is in textiles. Now, why are our prisoners producing so many textiles? Well, let me tell you, it's because we eliminated child labor. The whole idea of made in the USA is a lie. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a, you know, fist-pumping socialist Democrat. I'm saying this because (laughs) it's true. Uh, We... Uh, like to have this idea of superiority as Americans that we're not like the bad guys, when in fact we're worse than the bad guys. Now, the sweatshops in Vietnam, in Bangladesh, that are making your high-end clothing and your fast fashion with the tiny fingers of children is only just replicated in the prison industrial complex. So your Victoria's Secret underwear has been sewn by a prisoner. Uh, for seven cents an hour. So, and again, textile production is highly skilled labor, but they can't get a job in a factory after leaving prison because of their record. Do you see where we're going with this? Now, the most eye-opening thing that, for me anyway, (laughs) about the prison industrial complex is the number one contractor is Unicor with the prison system in America. Now, Unicor, it's in the name, it's a uniform company, it's a supplier, and they do most of their work for the military. So now you have two heads of the same monster keeping each other alive. You have the prison industrial complex providing material for the military industrial complex. And this only survives with the surplus of domestic infants. So this ruling of Roe versus Wade is only to perpetuate 
keeping the ruling class in charge. Now, the ruling class isn't just the GOP. The ruling, ruling class is basically everyone over the age of 50 that is white and Christian. You with me? You with me? And that's why they're so angry. Now, all of this anger coming from the MAGA tribe and the evangelicals is because they feel like the least favorite child of the ruling class. And if they just love me, if I do more to make them love me, they'll love me. Which is why you have so many radicalized young white men. Because they have been told that if this cycle doesn't keep going, they're going to lose their unearned place in the world. So now you see what I mean, that these are two heads of the same monster. And in order to keep it going, because it's been dying for the last 30 years that women have regained more control in society and over their lives, they have to walk it back because they need bodies. And the only way to do that is to legislate the women. We saw this happen also after World War II, and this was kind of when it became very apparent that we were going in this direction. Um, In the 30s, FDR was not playing. He was not liking what the Supreme Court was doing, and he's like, I'm just going to add justices until you guys knock it the hell off. We have to get this country back on track. He didn't tell everybody to go vote. He said, I'm just going to pack the court until we do the right thing. And now we have this ruling class that is supposedly the good guys telling everybody they just need to go vote. Well, we've been voting. We've been winning. And we're still losing because everybody's related, right? So to bring this back to France in 1791 and the women's movement, they noticed the same thing, too. They were like, wait a minute, women aren't putting up with our bullshit and we kind of need them too. So thanks for the revolution, ladies, but we need you to get back home and have babies. And we need you to be deferential to the men in your life because we need babies. It has nothing to do with being religious or pro-life. It is only to protect the ranking class. So let's get into how Napoleon handled this. So in 1804, when Napoleon crowns himself emperor, he keeps a lot of the ideologies from the revolution and the new republic in his Napoleonic code. But he did two things that ensured his place on the throne. And he was, for better or worse, incredibly open about his tactics. He didn't keep it a secret like Thomas Jefferson did. He said straight up, We need to bring back religion to keep these people scared. And we need to bring back religion to keep the women home. Because as the men were dying off in all of these Napoleonic wars, the women had to take over. Again, it mirrors World War II. The women had to take over and they were gaining power. And Napoleon's like, I need more people to fight. And I can't have a bunch of empowered women everywhere. Um, And that's, I think a large reason why Josephine's PR machine was what it was. And um, he had to kind of play that because Josephine was seen as a highly independent woman. She had legally separated from her aristocratic, I always get aristocratic, like the wrong syllable on it. So 
She had sought and won a legal separation, which was not possible normally. And she was incredibly powerful in her own right. And a lot of women looked up to her because she was the anti-Marie Antoinette of the time. Uh, mostly because Marie Antoinette was so ensconced in Versailles, nobody really knew what she was actually doing. I think they were both equally as powerful as their husbands. But the, again, repeating folklore as fact made Josephine like this strong, independent woman who got her man where he is. And while that helped Napoleon, it also hurt Napoleon, which is why he made the marriage laws he did, which made it even harder for a woman to leave a marriage. And he also reinstated the uh, Vatican and the Catholic faith in order to keep people scared and in line. Because it's not hard to fear a man, but it's even harder not to fear God. And having canon law reintroduced into society gave that just that edge of fear and more protection to the ruling class. So there's obviously a pattern here. However, abortion is still not illegal. If you don't want a pregnancy, you don't have to have one. And that's both in America and in Europe. So we are now going to go back to America and we are going to talk about what happens during Thomas Jefferson's presidency and that is the Second Great Awakening. Um, And this is something that is born from Tennessee and Kentucky and it's where we get our references for like tent revivals, etc. And this was led by a very reactionary sect of Methodists, Presbyterians, and um, Baptists. So it, it gave the colonies a boosted church growth. And because of the separation of church and state, this became an untouchable commodity. And through that, we saw this uh, very liberal, burgeoning American society go completely back into puritanical dark ages. And a lot of the rights women had uh, that weren't necessarily written down were immediately Stripped, And this is where we see a lot of scripture that wasn't necessarily followed um, in the religion of the time. So remember that most of (laughs) most of America is Anglican uh, on the East Coast. So we have more Episcopalians. We have some Presbyterians, but for the most part, they're Episcopalian. And of those Episcopalians, a lot of them are deists. So it's a very relaxed religious life. They, you know, I I always say that being Episcopal is like being Catholic, but with like better lighting and costumes. It's not, you know, it's a part of life, but it's not the ruling part of life. And the puritanical pilgrim, like the people who were oppressed in England for being fucking weird that came to America because they're fucking weird, uh, dispersed and went to the new territories such as Kentucky and Tennessee and continued to be weird. And 
now that there was more of a population to deal with and we had immigrants and we had different, you know, sex getting together, uh, this second great awakening happens and they produced a lot of seminaries, a lot of colleges, a lot of, uh, educational institutions. And it kind of, well, I won't even say kind of, but it permeates the South because we have, um, large agricultural needs in the South and the Northeast is still kind of running like England. <sighs> However, as technology improves and newspaper printing improves and America expands and the need for more exports happen, the way to do it, just like Napoleon did it, is to make people afraid of God. Cleanliness is next to godliness, laborious you know, virtues. This is where the American sensibility now becomes work a job until you die. You know, you have to keep the country moving. And this is also where we get the um, rebirth of our military complex because we've had the War of 1812. We have threat from France. We have, so we have to build our military. And this works out incredibly well for Thomas Jefferson. And this is the foundation of the society we're seeing today. With this, we dovetail nicely into the Victorian era. And now women are not seen as being capable of being midwives, of being um, apothecaries, of being medicine women. You don't see it anymore in the South and in the East because it's considered sinful. A woman is to only be the helpmeet of her husband and father. And a lot of the Spanish law that empowered women in the South was also abolished. And a lot of people don't understand that the South didn't have English common law for a very long time. They were operating on Spanish common law, and the Spanish model for law is equal because they're not a patriarchal society. At least they weren't then. Anyway, so we have, well, we have our two-headed monster born in our industrial complex that is now it's an agricultural complex until the Industrial Revolution. And then we have our military needs, and the Second Great Awakening dovetails into it nicely and creates the Victorian era because the influence is now in England. And this very buttoned-up, proper... Um, society led by Queen Victoria, who was a religious nutbag too, is, you know, very predominant in society. And it was at this time, women, it was considered disgusting to be pregnant. It was a very shameful thing. And you weren't supposed to show in public. Once your baby bump became unable to be laced in your corset, you had to be hidden away until your time. You were confined. Now, before the Victorian era, your confinement lasted, it was like maternity leave. Your confinement was like the last three weeks of your pregnancy and then the three months afterwards, and then you were reintroduced into society. And it sounds barbaric, but it's actually quite kind. <laughs> like You're not allowed to do anything but heal from your pregnancy and be reintroduced into the world. Now, in Victorian eras in Western Europe and America, 
the second you start to show, you are considered disgusting and you are to be hidden away. There was also the huge stigma of unwed pregnancy or a pregnancy that was from uh, rape, incest, anything that falls under the unwanted pregnancy umbrella also became four times more shameful. And the idea of it being the woman's fault is introduced. Not only, it's not introduced so much, it's amplified. Everything uh, misogynistic in our society is amplified. And we now have men physicians, male physicians, who have been conducting experiments on the slaves treating women. And as women pushed back, as they became more and more repressed, we started to see asylums fill with women who were diagnosed as hysterical and um, shunned for having a pregnancy out of wedlock. We started to see the maternity homes come up. And this is all due to the second awakening dovetailing into Victorian times. This is where we also see those orphans or those abandoned children introduced into labor, slave labor, as the Industrial Revolution begins, or they're sent to the military. So you're seeing this pattern come up. Now, the women in Victoria, see, women always find a way, and it's usually a dangerous way, but they find a way. So since the lacing of corsets was so, uh, we, won't, we don't have enough time in this podcast to talk about the female form <laughs> in these times, because we went from Josephine's example of a flowing femininity and, you know, ampere dresses, comfort, the post-revolution, uh, we're not going to do hoop skirts and corsets anymore. We're going to embody femininity and be free and wear ampere gowns and, you know, let it all hang out. And it overcorrects with the second awakening because that's seen as obscene. Um, so we're back to tight lacing corsets. We're back to bustles. We're back to hoop skirts. And women find a way. And, an un- and they found a way through passing down the tincture recipes to each other as well as tight lacing until the baby was expelled. Now, it was effective. However, it was dangerous because when you tight lace until you expel a pregnancy, you end up with uterine prolapse a lot of the time. And since we no longer had midwives assisting in women's issues, we just had dumb male doctors fisting the uterus back into the body. And this then continued health problems for the rest of the woman's life and usually ended up in their death along the way if they got pregnant again. So... This is, it's sad to see people who don't have a knowledge of history act like this is, isn't a precursor to things we've already gone through before. Um, people think it's overreacting. But even everything that happened in the Victorian times set the stage for 1930s Germany. And we're standing on the doorstep of that right now because controlling women and lower classes to protect the ruling class does 
100% every single time result in fascism and eugenics because it's motivated by fear of the uprising of the people. So this comes into play in order to stop the flow of protests and to criminalize everything in order to keep that indentured servitude cycle in place as well as continue to enrich the ruling class. Does that make sense? So what we're seeing now in this last week is that border patrol can enter any home within 100 miles of a border. Now, that is a lot of the most populated parts of the United States. I live in Chicago, and that's considered a border town because of the Great Lakes. So anybody at any time with a Border Patrol jacket can just walk in and raid me. And would I be sad if I was deported to Norway? No. (laughs) But (laughs) this is what I mean. Um, So if you look at it in, in a domino effect... So we had that, that's, that kicked off these, these terrible decisions. And then we heard that you have to fund religious schools with public money. That was a decision that was made. So now church and state have been obliterated. However, in that decision, it didn't say that in religious institutions have to start paying their fair of taxes, did they? No. No. So all of those seminaries and colleges and schools that were created in the Second Great Awakening are now being funded by public money. Church and state is gone. We also heard the um, decision that a cop does not have to Mirandize you. And a cop cannot be held accountable for not Mirandizing you. And we don't... So now we don't have our Fifth Amendment right, our 14th, you know, all of these rights that we fought so hard for, we don't, so they can, so do you see how this is going? And now we also heard a decision that prison complex is not required to give you informed health care that can exonerate you. It's setting the stage, and now with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, it's setting the stage for that perfectly crafted 1930s Germany that resulted in the Second World War. Um, So that's why I'm doing this episode is that we've been here for 300 years and we're actually in a worse place. We have a religious ruling class and even the moderate to liberal side of this ruling class is, again, the same side of the it's the different side of the same coin the people that are actually fighting for change are actively being repressed for a reason and we've seen it in every revolution in europe we've seen it in every world war world war one was literally (laughs) literally a mess um that set the state so we're, we're seeing history repeat itself and it's important to see that the idea is to confuse us and rage us and have us screaming at the sky to distract us rather than have us say, okay, this has happened before. How do we systematically take it down? And Americans have a hard time with that. Uh, again, there was that meme that the French History Podcast posted about how every time the French public gets pissed off at their government, they have a revolution. Well, they get results. 
was the point of that meme. Whereas when Americans get pissed off, they scream at the sky for five minutes, shrug their shoulder, and go back because we value things over society. And we're so nuclear in our communities that unless it's happening directly to me and my inner circle, it doesn't really matter because we don't have intersectionality in our society or in our culture. Our society is incredibly selfish and very much me, 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 which is why you see a lot of these issues get centralized. People center themselves in that because it's really the only way Americans can relate to anything because of what our society has been built on. Our society has been built on it. If it doesn't apply, let it fly rather than, oh, my fellow man, I should care. And you're seeing this a lot with especially white women with the overturn of Roe versus Wade. They're outraged as they should be. But this has been happening to uh, Native women and women of color. It's still happening. They have the highest mortality rate because of racism in healthcare. So it's bleak. It's bleak. And when, since this is a history podcast, all I can say is that it, we're in the basement of rock bottom. Is this unprecedented? No, but the, it get it always gets way worse before it gets better. And does it actually get better? I've been thinking about that a lot. I've been thinking a lot because we're moving into the second half of the first empire on this podcast. And after Josephine, is sent away, how quickly it unravels for Napoleon. And were the French people better off when that happens? You know, you, you, you try to view it for the, from the same lens. Is it that far removed from Louis XVI? And then when Louis XVIII assumes the throne... And then when Napoleon, like you, you see it, you're like, oh, okay. And then you go down rabbit holes that are like, okay, so when Napoleon three, and then you have the Habsburgs, and then you have World War One, and then you have, you know, Germany, and then you have World War Two, and then and here we are today. So it's from a historic point of view, you're like, okay, this, this is the the natural ebb and flow of things. Where does it go from here? And I don't have that much optimism until a revolution of some kind happens. So thank you. We're going to end it there. I just wanted to get those thoughts out there. Remember, the final point of this podcast is to point out that this is all to protect the ruling class and to produce a domestic surplus of infants for the prison industrial complex, which is our new slave labor, and the the second head of that monster, the military industrial complex, which again, slave labor, in order to what? Enrich the ruling class and protect them through fear. Thank you. That's all. We will resume normal programming next week. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, and we'll talk soon. Thanks.